That's awesome. Hi, Dad, whoever that was. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man, in Luke's account of Palm Sunday, the, the crowds are, are praising Jesus as the king, and the Pharisees start uh, rebuking Jesus to silence the people, and he says, man, if they're not praising me, the stones would cry out. So it's awesome that we get to celebrate Palm Sunday, because that means that Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is right around the corner. So I'm Mark Cash, discipleship pastor here, elder, and I am excited to talk to you about Acts 9 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19. So while you're, you're turning there, I've got a question for you. What does it take to change the world? What does it take to interrupt and change the course of human history? So we've seen history change through massive events that involve millions of people in, say, something like World War I or World War II. We've seen history change with the advent in science and in medicine, with the creation of something like antibiotics to change the world for everybody. We've seen the world change, history be turned through one person, like the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we find a world-changing, a history-turning event in our passage this morning with one person. Interrupted, confronted, conquered by Jesus Christ. The, the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, the impact on the world, you can't overstate it. Jesus Christ used this man to write his inspired word, to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth, to plant churches, to make disciples. Paul is the author of over 13, or not over, of 13 books in the New Testament. And he's the focus of over two-thirds of the book of Acts. Personally, many of us here were converted by the Holy Spirit under the words of Paul. Some of us here were changed to be more like Christ by the words of Paul. Many of us have been comforted in times of suffering by the words of Paul, all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But how did it happen? What, what events on this desert backwater road, how did what happened here, this, this divine confrontation, changed the world? We'll see a passage today that, that's familiar to many of us. If, if you grew up in church, perhaps you can still picture the, the, the coloring sheets where like Saul is knocked to the ground and there are people kind of standing around and there's a light shining or maybe it was like a felt thing that you went up in Sunday school and you kind of attached uh, to, to the wall to, to build the picture of Saul's conversion. So many of us are, are familiar with it, but my prayer and hope is that despite familiarity, we might be gripped by God's providence in choosing Saul, who according to Galatians 1.15 was set aside by God before his birth for this very mission. And that we might be in awe as we see the power of Jesus as he confronts Saul, he conquers Saul, he saves him by his grace. And that really is the main idea of our passage this morning. Jesus Christ's providence is so undeniable, and his grace is so powerful that he can take a threat-breathing murderer, an enemy, and redeem him to be his chosen instrument of grace. So we'll break the passage down into two parts. We're going to look at this enemy. We're going to figure out who Saul is. We're going to see how he's confronted. And then we're going to see an instrument chosen in the second half of our passage. So again, Acts 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder <clears throat> against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Father, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to hear the story, the account of Saul, to see your grace and your control in how you brought him to where he was and converted him. Father, help us to see that that is our own story, that we would be helpless, hating, without your saving grace. You loved us so that we might love you. Father, help us see what happens with with Ananias, his his fear, but yet his, his courage. Father, help us see this truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul's conversion, it's a focal point in the book of Acts. Luke records it three times. This chapter, chapter 22, chapter 26, he wants us to get it. He wants us to see how this enemy became an instrument of God to spread the gospel. It happened by the Lord's providence and through the power of his grace so many of us, we, we may hear the word grace, and we, we already have that definition in our mind, unearned or unmerited favor towards those who deserve punishment. You can easily make the case that we see this grace with Saul. Here is a man who did not get what he deserved. He got grace. We see grace most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, where where he takes on the cross the punishment deserved for sinners. He takes it and then gives us as a gift his righteousness that we might live to God. That is grace. We are forgiven and accepted by the Father on account of the work of Jesus and his righteousness. Grace is all over Saul's story. Not not just his conversion, but his ministry. In In his own words from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace that saved Saul is the same grace that empowered his ministry. We could highlight God's providence in in any historical narrative, but it's overt in the case of Saul. So how do we define providence? So I went on like a little search. I'm like looking at the Westminster Catechism on on providence. I'm looking at uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm looking then like, oh, the Belgic Confession. This is short. This can be understood. I understand it, okay? Here it is. The Belgic Confession of 1561 states, we believe that this good God 
after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. So good. And if that's still too long, we've got Piper's definition, right? Purposeful sovereignty. From a sparrow that falls to the ground, to the hairs on your head, from electrons to galaxies to the heart of man, nothing happens apart from the will of your Father. So right now, that, that's an encouragement to us. God's providence, it's not some sentimental slogan that we hang on to. And when times are tough, we say, I'm going to let go and let God. No, this is an anchor. This is an anchor for the believer who's in the middle of suffering, who is in the middle of uncertainty. They don't know why. They don't know how things are going to turn out. The inexplicable illness of a child, a, a hostile culture, a loss of a job. God's providence helps us know that our God Father, Son, and Spirit, in the midst of all of this hardship, loves us, cares for us intentionally, specifically. Nothing is left to chance with God's providence. His providence covers everything. So this truth has the ability to sustain you through anything. So we see with Saul, we see the Lord's providence in, in who he is and how he's wired. He's born in Tarsus. My wife tells me that people love maps. Okay, so I've given you a map here. It's, it's helpful. So you can see Tarsus there at the, at the top of the map in, in modern-day Turkey, okay? 600 miles north of, of Jerusalem. Tarsus, the time of, of Saul, was, was in modern-day Turkey. Like I said, it's part of the Roman Empire. But it was a free city, which meant that Saul also had a Roman citizenship. This, this city had a reputation for education and learning. This citizenship that, that Saul has as a Roman, this would give him rights and privileges that others did not have. And we'll see this later in Acts. He's had rabbinic training. Saul was educated in Jerusalem. He's trained under the well-known scholar Gamaliel. We heard about him back in Acts 5. He was reasonable, honorable, well thought of, and an expert in everything Jewish, everything Old Testament scriptures, law, wisdom, prophets, Mishnah, Talmud, all of it, Saul is an expert. His Jewish pedigree was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He could not compare his, his background his passion, and his zeal. He tells us about this in Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. When you put this together, Saul's background, his upbringing, his education, his knowledge, and his zeal. It's like he was born to be the enemy of the church. He was made for this. The perfect persecutor of the people of God. And we read in verse 1 and 2 that Saul's zeal against Christ's followers, it's, it's escalating. It's growing. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's an early reference to, to believers before they were called Christians or followers of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The perfect enemy. This, this word breathing, it's, it's unique. It's inhaling. So what are we doing? We, we're inhaling. We're, we're taking in life. What sustains us so what we see with, with Saul, this beast, this raging and destroying beast, this indignant fury that's fueled by a certainty that he's doing God's work, he's breathing in these threats. They give him life. It's what sustains him. This is his sole purpose is to destroy followers of Christ. It drives him 
to destroy those on the way. We see here it wasn't enough for Saul to just ravage the church in Jerusalem. Now Saul had requested, he had obtained papers that basically gave him the right to extradite believers anywhere he found them and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. From Saul's own mouth, here's how he describes himself in Acts 26. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. From his own mouth, the early church would rightly have seen Saul as a monster. So I want us to have this background so we can see the providence of God in in not only making Saul who he was, but how Jesus redeems all of those facets of who he was and puts him to work for his kingdom. We see the Lord's providence in that the very things that made Saul such an effective, formidable enemy of Jesus, once he's redeemed, makes him an even more formidable and effective apostle of Jesus Christ. All that education, that zeal, that fire, that intelligence, all of that reason and logic turned 180 degrees and now used for the kingdom of God. So think about your own situation for a minute. You may recall, it's okay if you don't, I'll remind you, but back in Acts 5, we we talked about rejoicing for being dishonored for the name of Jesus. I challenged the, we'll call them stubborn folks, you may want to call yourself tenacious, but we challenged the stubborn folks to be honey badgers for for Jesus. To have a a grace-filled fierceness for the gospel of of Christ. And that's exactly what we see happening with Saul. His zeal is given a holy focus. His iron will is redeemed. His intelligence leveraged for the kingdom. The next time we catch up with Saul is in chapter 13. That's where we first learn that Saul is also called Paul. And the words that are coming out of his mouth is against this wicked magician who's trying to confuse people, draw them away from Jesus, calls him a son of the devil, says, why are you trying to make crooked what the Lord has made straight, then calls upon the Lord to blind the magician. The magician is blinded and the people believe. Same Saul, same strengths, but now redeemed. The things that were ugly and evil are now redeemed and being used for good, no longer this, this ruthless rage, but a severe grace given to him by the Holy Spirit. So, what are your strengths? Your personality traits. Even your idiosyncrasies that can be leveraged for the kingdom of God. I'm always drawn to, to people who are steady. Because I can sometimes be passionate. <laughs> so I, I, I need the steadiness. I'm drawn to that. People are steady under pressure. Do you know how that you can minister to those of us that kind of are up and down? <laughs> Man, we, we, we look to you for that steadiness that God has, has given you. For those of you that have an iron spine, the church is going to need you going forward. We're going to need that gift of your faithfulness you may be thinking, all right, I, I, can, I hear you on strengths, Art, but I only have weaknesses. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Praise God that he redeems our weaknesses too. He takes away our sin. He takes away that, that anger, that rage, and replaces it with his fruit of the Spirit. So every single believer in here, has been given and is growing in gentleness, kindness, joy, faithfulness, peace, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. God is giving you that for the glory of his kingdom. He will use your strengths. He will redeem your weaknesses for his glory. How does this transformation happen, though, this 
this confrontation that leads to a conversion. It happens entirely due to the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's see it beginning in, in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's headed to Damascus, all right? Map two here. So if you're, if you're walking to Damascus from Jerusalem, nearly 300 kilometers, it's going to take you a while to get there. The reason I share that with you is because how, how much must the destruction of the church of Jesus been in the heart of Saul? wasn't enough, again, to, to get them out of Jerusalem. It was tracking them down and stomping them out. What happens in verses 3 through 9 is it's a watershed moment. History turns. The world changes. Jesus Christ confronts Saul of Tarsus, conquers him, converts him. In verse 3, we see that it was a light that shone around them. Later passages tell us that this happened at noon. So that means the light had to be brighter than the sun. Unmistakable. Can't miss it. In verse 4, Jesus repeats Saul's name. This is personal for Jesus. He wants Saul's attention. Saul, Saul, he knows him. Then look at what he says in verse 4. Why are you persecuting me? Saul logically asks, who are you, Lord? In verse 5, there's no way that Saul have been prepared for this response. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So if the light hadn't already knocked him to the ground, I think this answer would have. But see how Jesus identifies himself here. You're persecuting me. Jesus so closely identifies with his followers that their persecution is his persecution. Brothers and sisters, that matters to us, to every believer in the room. We, we don't worship some distant God of fate or chance and hope for the best. I mean, you, again, in, in my house, when we're watching a movie, there's a lot of pausing that happens. I can guarantee you that when, in some movie, the hero hears, and then they say, oh, well, the universe must have wanted me to da-da. The moment that I hear that the universe wanted anything for you, pause. Universe doesn't want anything for you. Universe was created through, for, and by Jesus Christ, who is personally united to you. This union is personal. Your pain is his pain. Your suffering is his suffering. Your cares, his cares. Your joy, his joy. Providence is not some cool detachment, but rather an intimate sharing with one who is closer to you than a brother one who is closer to you than a spouse, one who is united to you through the cross by his blood, sealed to you by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get closer. Providence is not some cool, far-off detachment. And you have to love the irony of witnessing the doctrine of our union with Christ actually taking place in, in history, in historical narrative. It's unfolding with the enemy of Jesus who would soon be the most articulate defender and explainer of our union with Christ. In his letter to the Galatians, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's united. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is our union. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is grace, gospel-fueled union, a life lived, united to Christ. I mean, it's sweet to watch history and doctrine meet. And we see that in Acts 9. So Saul, he's been confronted, he's been conquered, he's been converted by this overflowing grace of Jesus Christ. How do we know? We know because 
from his own hand, 1 Timothy 1.13. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We know he's converted because we see his actions in, in verse 9. In verse 11, for, for three days he was without sight. Then eat, drink. We know he's fasting. We know from verse 11 he's praying. Is he in shock? Possibly. Wouldn't you be? But I would, I would submit to you that this was also a time of repentance for Saul. I mean, can you imagine what's going through his mind in those three days? Confronted and conquered by Jesus, the weight and the horror of the sins that he committed, replaying stone by stone as they hit and crushed and killed Stephen, thinking through the, the look on his own face of, of self-righteous self satisfaction, the feeling in his own heart at the screams of the children as mom and dad were ripped away from him and put in prison because they believe in Jesus. All of that is going through Saul's mind. I doubt any of us in this room can, can imagine what's replaying in the mind of Saul over and over in those three days. Here's a man undone by his wickedness. But he's not without hope. He's not without hope. Because the Jesus whom he was persecuting has not just crushed Saul with an awareness and a knowledge of his, of his sin and wickedness. He, he's not just crushed him there. But rather, he's, he's saved him and given him a brand new purpose. Verse 6, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Those are words of hope. He's not just saying, Saul, you're terrible, you're sinful, sit in it. You made this bed, now lay in it. He's saying, get up. I have something for you to do, and it's going to change the world. Maybe you can identify there with, with Saul somewhat. Sins that, that haunt you, that you re replay over and over and over. Most of the, the battle of, of being a Christian is reminding ourselves of what's true. Yes, by nature I am a sinner, but by the blood of Jesus, the words of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, I am a saint, chosen, redeemed, a people belonging to Jesus, the bride of Christ. We know that Saul was converted because he already knew the gospel. Think about it. Saul knew that Jesus was crucified on a tree, so he, he knows, he's thinking back going, somebody crucified on a tree, somebody that's hung on a tree, they're cursed. There's no way that this could be God. All of this starting to shift for him. Oh, he had to become a curse so that we could be no longer of the, under the curse of sin. He knew there was an empty tomb. He witnessed the power of Stephen's argument and his humble death. He knew Christ's followers believed that Jesus was the only way to God. He knew that Jesus himself said that he is God. So once Jesus identifies himself to Saul, you can picture this gigantic puzzle piece, this whole way of life just shifting into a different direction, shifting in the right way. All of that knowledge comes crashing in on Saul. And what was heresy yesterday is his only hope today when he realizes that the gospel is true, all of it. We can know this for sure by just peeking ahead at verse 20. Look, look ahead at verse 20. The first words out of his mouth after he's been with Ananias. And immediately he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He's the Son of God. Here's the one who came to Damascus to crush this truth. And now he's proclaiming it. Praise the Lord. So what, what can we learn from Jesus confronting, converting Saul? What, what does this mean for us? Luke includes Saul's conversion so that we will know that if Jesus Christ can save Saul, he can save anyone. Now, it's not a new application. 
As long as we've been told the story of Saul, that's the application. He can save anyone. Just because we're familiar with it, it doesn't lessen the truth. It's absolutely true. He can save anyone, so know it, believe it, pray accordingly. Pray for your worst enemy. Pray for the worst enemy of the church, for the blackest sheep in your family, the one that you think there is no hope for this person. They are so far away from Jesus. I don't even feel like praying for them. Pray. If Jesus Christ can save Saul, which he did, he can save anyone. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. It also means that no matter what your past was before Jesus, he can and will absolutely use you for his plan, purposes, and glory. Sin that you've committed, you wouldn't dream of anybody in here ever learning about. Sin that was committed against you that you would never think of sharing with others. You've been made clean. You have been washed. You are loved and made clean by Jesus. This, this truth is inescapable when we look at Saul. This overflowing grace of Jesus that saved Saul, it was, it was to also encourage us in our faith now as, as Christians. We know this from 1 Timothy 1. 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. One of Paul's last letters, and he still sees himself with the both and, that he is a sinner and he's saved by grace. Why did he receive this mercy? Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, present tense, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to you, to me, to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. If he can save somebody like Saul, he can save somebody like you. If he can be patient with somebody like Saul, he can be patient with somebody like you. That is good news in our walk as Christians. Next, it would be wrong to expect a Damascus Road-type experience from every believer. That, that confuses the categories of what's descriptive in Scripture and what's prescriptive. Brothers and sisters, I have no idea when, when I came to Christ. I just know it was here, and it was around 16 years ago. And there were Sundays where I would come in, and I, I would poke Heather and be like, I am so bored. Can, I mean, I'm here for you. Can we just can we go? Just so bored. Did not understand expositional preaching at all. Didn't care. My heart was dead. And then, I don't know when, but I know what happened because I'm sitting there on Sundays and the, the, the preacher would be done. I'd be like, no, 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 no. I want more. Give me more of the word of God. Let me hear more about this Jesus. So I can tell you when, but I can tell you it happened. And it wasn't Damascus Road. It was gradual. Desires were changed by the Holy Spirit. So few of us have had as dramatic of a conversion as Saul. But God's grace and power was no less miraculous in our own conversions than what happened with Saul. His providence and his grace saved you just like it did Saul. It was God's providence that prepared Saul for conversion. I think of the number of sermons that I listened to from, from birth to 30 years old, that just fell on deaf ears, blind eyes, and a stone-dead heart. Those sermons weren't, weren't void. They, they were preparing. They were getting me ready for conversion. This, this, this grace converted Saul. This is our story, too. We know it from Paul's own hand in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And sometimes I'm, I'm afraid we get the Lord's saving grace backwards. We get it upside down. We think, if, it, if it's this powerful, if it's this irresistible, then we somehow are saved against our will, under, under compulsion like mindless robots. 
Brothers and sisters, that is completely backwards. It is sin that enslaves our minds. It is sin that corrupts and subjugates our will. It is the power of the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that frees the slave and liberates the will. It is God's grace that changes our nature to actually want to place our faith in Christ. It'd be, it'd be like this, be in the middle of a big meal, this meal that you eat over and over and over every day of your life, this delicious meal, and, and you look down at this big juicy steak that you're eating, and from a power outside of you, a grace outside of you, your eyes are open to see that that big juicy steak is rotten, that it's filled with maggots. Would I have to force you or coerce you at that moment to stop eating that rotten meat and feast on Jesus? No, by no means. God's grace opens our eyes to the putridness of sin. And that's, it's not just the, the most horrible sin that we could think of, the most wicked sin. It, our sin could look like really, really good things that we've come to depend on, that we've come to love more than anything else, that we've come to fear losing more than anything else, and we've escalated those things to a place of worship. God's grace opens our eyes to see that whatever good thing it is that we are worshiping, it can never satisfy. And contrasted with the grace of God, Jesus Christ himself is rotten. God's grace changes our desires liberates our will to choose what is right, true, and pure. It is God's powerful, sovereign grace that enables us to actually be truly human. Again, if we're contrasting sin and humanity, it's sin that makes us a mindless, enslaved robot acting under compulsion. It's grace that frees us to be the most human that we can possibly be this side of heaven. That is not manipulation, that is mercy. That is not robotic compulsion. That is remarkable compassion. So the enemy's confronted, he's converted, and now we find out what he's been chosen to do. Look at, look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So we can tell right away there's more than one chosen instrument of the Lord in Damascus when we see what Jesus tells Ananias to do, and that he obeys. Maybe times in sermons where you hear Saul's conversion preached, and it's like, okay, we need to be like Saul. Okay, I'll give you that. We need to be like Saul, and that we were recipients of grace. We're laying there passively receiving this awesome gift. What I also want to submit to you is we need to be like Ananias. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Because here's somebody who obeyed, despite his fear. So we see the grace of Jesus saving Saul. We see the grace of Jesus empowering Ananias. Look at verses 11 through 16. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. That's still there. You can Google image that. Don't do it right now. But Straight Street is, is still there in Damascus, Syria. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias, just for clarity's sake, he's the good Ananias, not the Ananias that like lied to the Lord earlier. Okay, different Ananias. Likely a leader among the earliest believers in Damascus. He would have been the center of the bullseye for Saul. So when Jesus tells Ananias to go help Saul, well, that had to give him a million questions. That had to strike fear in his heart, not just fear for himself, but for all the believers in Damascus. 
So Ananias basically responds in verse 13 with a, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure about this, Jesus? And I want you to know, notice Jesus' response. He doesn't, he doesn't chastise Ananias. He doesn't roll his eyes and move on to someone more faithful, more compliant. Ananias is Jesus' chosen instrument, his agent of providence towards Saul. So Jesus responds to him kindly, and he gives Ananias a specific reason for this command, even though Jesus doesn't owe Ananias any explanation at all. So we see in 17 what Ananias does. So Ananias departed and entered the house Ananias obeys Jesus. I, I really want to know what that looked like, though. Just to be completely candid with you, like, how did he do it? I'm assuming he walked kind of quietly up to that house. If it's me, I'm at least peeking in the window. <laughs> if, if there's people outside, I'm going to be asking them, is it okay? Is it safe? I want to know what, what's happening there. It doesn't matter exactly how he did it. The point is that he overcame his fear and he obeyed Jesus. He obeyed and we can learn from him. Some of us may read this account of Saul's conversion and think, I, I'm no Paul. God hasn't equip, equipped me like that. Here's the good news. You're right. You are not Paul. <laughs> you are not an apostle. This was a one-time in history type of event in Saul's conversion. However, each of us are daily faced with opportunities to be Ananias. Will we obey Jesus even though we are afraid? Even though we have no idea of the outcome of our obedience or what it might cost? You could say, that's fine, Art. I, all right, I'm supposed to be Ananias, but I'm secretly thinking that Ananias only really obeyed because Jesus showed up and told him what to do. Maybe. But he had questions and doubts even after Jesus identified himself. So I think part of what motivated Ananias was the explanation that Jesus gave him. And that explanation is one that we all have. Once Jesus explained what he was choosing Saul to do to spread the gospel, Ananias obeyed. You see, Ananias is a recipient of the good news of the gospel. He's a believer. He's experienced the joy of his sins forgiven, the power of the Holy Spirit in him. He knows that he was once blind and now sees. He knows that he was once an enemy of Jesus, and now he is a brother saved by grace. So he wants others to have this same truth shared with them. Jesus says, Saul is my chosen instrument to carry the gospel out to kings, Gentiles, Jews, the whole world. So the motivation to see others saved outweighs any fears that Ananias had. This is an example of gospel-drenched courage. So where should this be the case for you? Fears of rejection, being shamed, perhaps losing a job, denied a promotion, losing influence if you speak about or act like Jesus. So the question we have to ask ourselves is just the joy that we have in Christ, his love for us, his mercy and grace towards us. Do those truths outweigh the fear? That's our prayer for us. And in this case, for Ananias, his obedience worked out for him, as far as we know. But what about when it doesn't? Look at verse 16. Jesus tells Ananias, Saul is going to suffer. He's going to suffer for my name. The rest of Acts shows us how the gospel spreads through Saul and how much he suffered for the name of Jesus. 2,000 years later, it's still the same plan. We may be celebrating new believers, placing their faith in Christ, getting baptized like what we saw earlier in first service, disciples of Christ maturing. We may be celebrating that on a Sunday and losing our job on a Tuesday. Here is the both end of what it means to be a Christian. In 2021, we are still Jesus' ambassadors, sharing his name for his glory, despite the cost, because of the joy. 
we face this tension like our brother Paul. What he tells us in Philippians 3, we move forward with our eyes set on the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. We keep sharing Jesus knowing that we can suffer the loss of all things because we've gained Christ. When we see and hear and read that Saul is going to be a chosen instrument of the Lord, we could get this, this picture of an aloof master who's just sitting back and using his scalpel to excise and, and attack something cold and calculating. We know that this is not the case, even though Saul is going to suffer. We know that he worships a kind Savior. We know because of how closely Jesus identifies with his own. We know because of how he sends Ananias to interact with Saul. Saul has a new family in verses 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I've read this passage I don't know how many times. I've heard it taught. It's never occurred to me before is the kindness of Jesus shown to Saul through Ananias. I mean, look at the first two things he does. He touches Saul, and he calls him brother. Now, you, you could look at that from a detached point of view and reduce the laying on of hands as something that was necessary in the early church in Acts, bearing witness. We know that Jesus appeared to Ananias and, and told him to go and do this, departing, imparting the Holy Spirit to Paul. This is obviously what happened. But remember how we left Saul, blind, helpless, praying, not eating or drinking, as far as we know, alone. So we should not, we can't underestimate the kindness of Christ in the touch of a fellow believer. The encouragement it can give when you're feeling alone and in the dark. And this is coming from the, the king of awkward huggers. You may come in and try and hug me, and I'm going to stick the hand out there trying to, trying to shake your hand. I'm not sure what to do with my hands during a hug, okay? It's, it, it's awkward for me. But here, here it is, this brotherly affection. He lays his hands upon Saul. He calls him brother. This is, this is shining the light of a new truth into darkness. The one who was so afraid... Ananias calling the source of so much terror, brother. It is God's providence and grace that brought these two together. So we think of Saul being the one who's fierce, he's courageous, he's larger than life. That comes about as a direct result of the providence of God, his grace and mercy sending Ananias to him with words of truth and encouragement at the darkest moment of his life. God's providence and grace brought you to this church at this time. And if you are a believer in Christ, behold your family. You are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. So who could you encourage? Who's, who's hurting? Who's feeling alone? Who needs to be reminded that they actually have you as a brother or sister in Christ and that you both together have a Savior who loves you? Who do you know that needs to be reminded that the Lord can and will use them for his plans and his glory despite all their hardship and all their weaknesses? We need to effectually encourage one another and speak truth. Saul's filled with the Spirit. Jesus sends Ananias to serve as a witness to what's happened. He restates to Saul what's happened to him. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, verse 17. Then he tells Saul why he's there, to heal him and fill him with the Spirit. Ananias provides Saul with his own Pentecost. We know this because Saul is physically restored. Every limitation 
from earlier in the passage. Not eating, not drinking, not seeing. It's all undone. Once Saul is filled with the Spirit, immediately something like scales fall from his eyes and he regains his sight. He gets up, he gets baptized, eats food and regains his strength. This restoration, it's, it's a physical picture of Saul's spiritual state. The blind can now see. The one who was feasting on rotten meat can now taste and see that the Lord is good. Saul sees who Jesus really is, so he steps forward in obedience and is baptized. He steps forward out of a true and passionate faith. Remember what this would have cost him at the time. Enormous cultural ramifications. This is the public persecutor of Christ now officially, publicly aligning himself with the person of Christ. Being baptized, symbolizing, we learn in Romans 6, his own words later, symbolizing his death to sin and new life in Christ. So as we close, let us consider again the next words out of his mouth. This former enemy of Christ, now a chosen instrument. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Father, we need eyes to see him. We need to have eyes to see the grace that's been given to us, the providence in our salvation, in our sanctification. We need our father's help to help us to be able to believe with Paul his own words from 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we ask that you would seal this truth into our hearts that you saved us by your grace due to no works of our own. It's your work, your son's work, your plan, your son's work, the Holy Spirit sealing us. Father, we thank you for redeeming us from being an enemy to now being adopted sons. Father, we pray that out of the truth of our conversion, out of seeing your grace and your providence, that our trust and faith in you would increase as we share who you are with a dying world with people who, who need to know about your plan of salvation. Father, we, we ask that you would embolden us by your spirit, encourage us by your word. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.